good afternoon. Um, I don't know about you, but that's the first time I've ever walked on stage to Maroon 5. <laughs> Might be the last time. Uh, welcome, everyone. Let me uh, introduce this uh, all-star panel. I'm going to do it from uh, left to right as you see it. Uh, first, we have uh, Meg Starr, who's Global Head of Impact at the Carlisle Group. To her left, Joanna Reese, the co-lead of Impact at Apollo. And finally, Erica Karp, Chief Impact Officer at Pathstone. It's a high-impact panel. Welcome, all of you. Um, I thought it might make sense to start by trying to define terms a little bit. You know, there are, there are people, and I might be one of them, who will use ESG investing and impact investing more or less interchangeably. Um, there aren't really fixed definitions of any of these things. So I wonder, as, as all of you have impact in your title, what does impact mean to you? Uh, and we can, we can go alphabetical. So Erica, you can go first. Well, impact means that it matters. Something happens when you do something. Um, you move something. Uh, by the way, I would argue that uh, ESG is not, it's not an asset class, it's not a style, it's not a strategy, it is not ESG investing. ESG is an analytical um, lens, all right? It is simply a starting point. Uh, it's a discipline. So that's how we see it. Once you do ESG analysis, you can do any kind of investing you want. How we think about it is ESG is ownership practices, making sure that we are mindful for any specific business of the ESG risk factors, opportunities, managing them carefully the same we would manage factors associated with any part of an investment. We're going to watch the company's debt covenants. We should also be watching its governance policies. Impact we think of as the next iteration and separate. So for impact, we look at companies that are actually, through their products or services, doing something good in the world, whether it be socially or environmentally. And so you could have pretty much any company with good ESG, or uh, we tr certainly try, but not every business can be an impact business in our definition. One, one handy way of remembering it, we came up on our call on, on Friday, um, that somebody was talking about investing in the Venetian. And, like The Venetian can have the best ESG policies in the world, but it's really hard to make the case that they're doing good in the world, right? Well, they might be bringing joy. They might be bringing joy. <laughs> but, yeah. at By least way. in our definition, it's not quite there. But, but I also think we're entering a next phase of this space where I agree with Joanna of ESG is typically about how a company operates and impact is what it does to make a profit. And those have been separate tools, but I think we're seeing a lot of convergence because the market is starting to price in companies that are helping to solve environmental and social challenges. And so you can take a company that might not look impactful at face value. Uh, Carlisle bought a company called Wyman, Pharma uh, Wyman a couple of years ago, cleaning supply company. Our thesis was around changing consumer preferences for green, safe cleaning supplies. And so our investment was all about how do we transform that company into a clean, you know, producer. And so I do think in some instances, there's this intersection of you need both of those as we think about what's being valued into the market. James, I, I just have to say that ESG analysis gives us an opportunity to get away from good and bad. Right. Yeah. We don't, we don't have to say good and bad. In fact, our investors, our clients are the ones that say good and bad, even though we might not agree with them. But ESG analysis allows you to align you know, your values with your investments. But it is about value, not values, when it comes to doing this kind of analysis. You don't have to say good and bad. 
Yeah. I, I love that because I, I feel like so frequently that topic comes up with people saying like, well, is Amazon a good ESG company? You're like, or, or arguing that like, you know, someone has an S&P 500 type equivalent that's lower carbon and they're picking out individual names saying like, how could you call that name? And, and the whole point is it's not labels and it's not binary. It's how are they doing vis-a-vis -vis peers on material, environmental, and social dimensions for their business. Um, Meg, you, you touched on something that, that uh, I, I want to go into a little deeper, and, and that is this, this idea of, of the categories merging a little bit or, or perhaps both being necessary. Just stepping back a little bit, I'm, I'm curious to hear from all of you too, how do you think about, how do you describe what has happened to this sector over the last, say, three to five years? And what, what is making that happen? Yeah, well, I think Erica, it's not a sector. <laughs> it's not a sector. Um, I, I, have, I have this kind of thesis that we're in the second wave of this being a contrarian thesis. Um, and in its early days, when people thought about ESG or whatever they termed it, they're like, that's feel-good investing or fuzzy math. Like, how can you possibly make money when you're busy thinking about carbon emissions or the people? The world is flipped where we realize that companies that are thinking about engaged, safe, productive workforces, that companies that are in the forefront of the energy transition, they're outperforming. And so a lot of capital has flowed towards those ESG leaders. And I think what we're seeing now is that the kind of next phase of saying, actually, how can you invest in companies that maybe don't have great environmental or social dimensions, improve those. And that's actually the kind of activism thesis of improving those companies into the higher multiples. Interesting. I mean, fundamentally, for any business we own or lend to or otherwise engage with, you have a certain level of responsibility. In the same way you are responsible for helping them figure out their procurement strategy, you're also responsible for making sure that the appropriate employment policies are in place, what have you. And I think that, importantly, that has become table stakes. Um, our, um, our investors expect it. They're shocked if you're not focused on it. And it's a major area of investment. We think opportunity to make our companies better, which is fundamentally what we try to do. Buy a company, make it better, make some money for our investors along the way. But the impact side of it, I think, is quite interesting because impact investing is not new. Um, the, if you were to go back, I mean, we're talking decades of people focused on whether it be microfinance in emerging markets. That is you know, the quintessential impact investing. What we think is new is the focus on, at least what we're doing here at Apollo, is impact at scale and trying to think through how do you take that mindset? How do you take all of those approaches, practices that have been built up over the, call it, decade or two, and apply that to more businesses and accomplish what Meg described, which is find businesses that have potential for impact, that are in that marketplace and where you see an opportunity to take a company that's doing something that's fine and turn it into a company that's doing something really good in the world. And that's what I think is new. And the other part of it that is clearer is just the level of attention it has grown um, exponentially. And I think that's, uh, frankly, one of the good things to come out of the pandemic is a greater mindfulness of, of the externalities of everything we do. Yeah. So whether it's business uh, B2B uh, consumption patterns, B2C, people are more mindful. And of course, the government overlay is, is that we should be thinking through how do we help underserved communities? How do we help the environment? All of that is just the secular tailwind behind what we're trying to do. Erica? So what I would add is that there's a bunch of new things going on. One thing that's new is that we have every kind of piece of the capital markets lined up like we never did. 
right? So you have the asset managers and the asset owners and the investment banks, the exchanges, the accountants, the lawyers, the students, right? We have everybody lined up to, to think about this in a really transparent way. And on top of that, we now have standards for disclosure that are coming along the SASB and GRI and what's going on there. So the standards for disclosure transparency is really transformational. So that's critical. And another thing that's new is that we have data um, that is turning noise into signal, right? We have social media making everything, everybody knows everything all at the same time, right? We have an intergenerational transfer of wealth of trillions like we haven't seen before. So all this stuff, um, happening at the same time, that's new. And then further, we are moving away from myths, stupid myths that, um, that there's some breach of fiduciary duty when you do ESG analysis. It's quite the opposite. And then a myth that there has to be underperformance from the investment standpoint. Stupid and it's being put aside. So there's a lot new that's going on. Um, the risk, though, is as the movement, we call it that, I call it a discipline, as the discipline shows asset flows, we're getting everybody coming in to try to do this type of analysis. And that's, that's problematic. Um, so we have to be careful um, that we don't kind of undermine the whole economic and impact proposition because of new players that are basically marketing. So we got to be careful about that. I do think it's problematic in some ways, but I also, we're applying a, a ton of scrutiny right now to anyone that purports to do ESG, which I think is a great thing. I also want to see, see people apply that level of scrutiny to the people that don't claim to be thinking about environmental or social dimensions. And so on one hand, I do think this market rush to focusing on this, there will be a wide dispersion of what that actually looks like. But I think the market will sort through that. Like we sorted through that before when venture capital became a thing and everyone raised a vendor hedge funds. Like we've been through this before. And so I think we're in the early innings of it's been recognized as a major discipline. And now we'll sort through sort through who's actually doing it well versus who's putting in a pitch deck because they think people want to see that. Hmm. Um, Erica, I just want to uh, touch on something you said there to, 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 to capture the moment. Um, it's, I think at this point in the discussion that someone usually brings up the Milton Friedman article from 50 <laughs> years ago that the only social purpose of business is to maximize profits. You're saying, if I'm understanding you correctly, that is dead. That, as a philosophy, that is dead. No, I love profits. <laughs> it's not dead. Unfortunately, he just left out two words. Had he put in long term, we'd be good. Right. Right? We really would be good. And so, and Friedman, if you read the work, um, you know, he wasn't like um, totally like tone deaf to society, not at all, right? But those two words, just like with Adam Smith, right? The wealth of nations. Go back further than that and think about the theory of moral sentiments. He cared about human beings, but in the wealth of nations, he didn't talk about these negative externalities that could happen. Right, and so there's a miss. But now we're at a place where, you know, we're at least conscious about what's going on. And we can start accounting um, for profits while taking into mind, you know, not just financial capital, but human capital and natural capital, 
So we have an opportunity, but yeah, I love profits as much as the next person. I mean, what I think is critical here is finding the right businesses, finding business where profit and purpose are not intention every day, and then owning them with a focus on both is how we get to the outcomes our investors want that we want that's good for impact investing. If you just um, you know, pick a business where you do have that fundamental, if we're going to improve profit margins, we're going to be hurting our, um, you know, this environmental issue, this underserved constituency, what have you, then you find yourself in the opposite condition where you by necessity are putting one to the side. So that's the tricky part in my mind is finding those businesses that, that where you move in the same direction. And I think to that point about like if the purpose of business is around generating profit, what we're finding is that you generate more profit in today's day and age if you're conscious of your environmental and social footprint. And Erica was talking about if we can actually have data, you can sort the signal from the noise. And at Carlisle, we have really granular ESG data because we ask for it from our companies. We have 250 portfolio companies, give or take. And we have really granular financial data because we're investors in them. And so when you combine those together, you can actually start seeing where those levers are. And one quick example, we hear a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our portfolio companies that have at least two diverse board directors have 12% faster annualized earnings growth than our companies without diverse directors. And to this whole point about like the purpose is profit, the, the data is there. If you do it right. Yeah and, yeah. and not all ESG things matter for any company or for, you know, a specific company, yeah. but there are specific levers and being smart about finding those that is maximizing profit in a changing world. Um, Joanna, you, you said something that uh, I wanted to frame slightly differently. The title of this panel is impact is everything. Everything <laughs> is impact. I think what you just say is that's not actually true. Um, within maybe a sector, there are businesses where it's true or in individual businesses. What did you mean when you said you have to find the right business where those goals are not uh, in, where they're not in conflict? And fundamentally, my take and our take at Apollo is that not every business can be an impact business because not every business that is still investable, that does still have good ESG, where we think we can drive the type of returns uh, we look to accomplish across our various strategies, demonstrates what we're looking for from an impact business, which would be you know, fidelity with the IMP five dimensions of impact and fundamentally doing good things for either people or the planet. And it, it's hard. You know, there are plenty of things that we like that are investable that don't help underserved communities. I mean, how does cosmetics become an impact business? I struggle, but I think we're going to continue to have cosmetics into the future. And that's something that's not even... I have know. a differing argument. <laughs> totally we different. Just, we just bought, um, at Carlyle, we just bought, uh, invested in a company called Beauty Counter. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Invested about $500 million, billion dollar valuation company, unbelievable founder, Greg Renfew. And she is focused on how do you become a differentiated consumer brand by leading the market in green, safe ingredients. And in the U.S., we don't have this thing called the precautionary principle, which most European countries have, which means that we have to prove chemicals are safe before we put them in our products. So Beauty Counter has taken that upon themselves. They have 1,800 ingredients they won't put in their products. They've gone to the mat on issues like mica or palm oil and sourcing sustainable palm oil. And, and they're focused on this idea of how do you take makeups or cosmetics from just being a consumer product to actually saying, how can we be at the forefront of sustainability 
because that's actually driving consumer behavior now. And so that's our differentiated angle. And, and so I, I agree with you about this. I, the, the idea I know we're talking about casinos is like not every business is an impact business. I think every business has an opportunity to improve on sustainability dimensions that will increase their value. And that doesn't mean it will be a pure play impact business, but I think mm -hmm. there's some really interesting things there. That's where we fall back into what's ESG yeah. versus what's impact, at least in, in, but everyone I've ever met has their own definition. <laughs> this yeah. is part of the problem. Erica? Um, so sustainable investing. It is the systematic analysis of the material environmental, social, and governance issues that go into that investment discussion. Like that's what sustainable investing is. Impact investing adds two things. The idea of intentionality and then material, excuse me, measurability. All right, so th those are definitions that we have found very helpful. But I have to tell you what's so interesting. Again, I get away from good and bad. I get to investing. The history of sustainable investing was very kind of ideological, sometimes politicized, divisive. The future of sustainability, of uh, impact and sustainable investing is in um, pragmatism and enhanced analytics. And then it's about the values of asset owners. So at, at Pathstone, we manage about $30 billion uh, for families and foundations and endowments. I can tell you that there's you know, interest in sustainable investing and impact investing ranging from zero um, to ranging all in impact. But it differs for everyone. Again, we're talking about these families and foundations. We have clients who are sustainable and impact investors who are invested in tobacco. We have clients that believe that that's a product that if used as designed, it will kill you. We have the product the clients that have the tobacco and point out that the tobacco plant is a unique manufacturing facility for very interesting um, drugs and compounds, right? So it's all over the map, just like with Amazon. And by the way, at this conference, we're talking about cryptos and Bitcoin. Um, arguably, um, Bitcoin is the tobacco of currencies. I mean, think about the carbon emissions and environmental impact of, you know, the, the blockchain system um, on these Bitcoins. It's going to kill us, potentially. So another thing we try to talk about, again, not to be ideological, we talk about the idea um, of, again, pragmatism. As a sustainable investor, do I care more about the environmental, the negative environmental impact of Bitcoin, or do I care more about the potentially really positive impact on society, access to finance? So the reason I use these examples is because there is not one definition. It is the wealth owners um, that we need to be able to have intelligent and non-divisive, non-political conversations when it comes to everything. And also, as it relates to uh, sectors or industries where you can or cannot find impact, every investment, every investment, whether it's corporate or wealth owners, has impact. Whether it's good or bad, we don't necessarily know. But everything has impact. So it really is the way to, to really have impacted scale is to bring in everybody, trillions. That's impacted scale. So we need to um, inform and be transparent and be honest about what we know and what we don't know. Your example about tobacco is so interesting to me. 
Um, at Worth Magazine, which is owned by Clarum, um, we recently published an article that went through a little bit of the history of what used to be called socially responsible investing and or, or filter sin taxes, sin, sorry, sin stocks, uh, and the filters used to, to um, remove them from portfolios like tobacco, alcohol, um, military contractors, et cetera. Um, what you're suggesting, though, is that because there is no single definition of either of these terms, ESG or impact, is it, is it the advisor's role to come up with a definition of those things that fit the investment desires of the client? Is that what you're saying? That you, that you, no, you're not saying that. No, I'm not saying that. ESG analysis is a discipline. It's, part, it's, the, it's the starting point for recommending or not an investment and then aligning it with what the investor wants. That's what I'm supposed to do as an advisor. So um, transparency, risk analysis, all this stuff, and opportunity. So all that's the stuff that we do as advisors. I'm, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm no, I like understand. it anyway. <laughs> would, would you then endorse the view that a, a company that sells cigarettes passes the ESG test because of these pharmaceutical links? or There is no ESG test. Right. And there is no such thing as a good or bad ESG company. It doesn't exist. There is an analytical process. Can we decide if it, let's use tobacco again. Um, can you invest in a tobacco company that is absolutely committed to transforming itself? Are you comfortable with the magnitude and the pace of transformation? My job is to talk to my clients and, and find out what are they comfortable with? What is their time frame? What is their risk appetite? And again, show them, and I'm going to give them my opinion. They're going to ask, and I will share the opinion. But it comes down to objectivity and honesty and transparency. Yeah. Um, on the question of data and transparency, you know, one of the trends in impact investing over the last, say, 10, certainly 20 years um, has been a, a, a big shift from private to public. So a lot of the a, a overwhelming majority of, of companies that got ESG or impact investing 15 years ago were private. Um, now it's something like 15 to 20 percent are public. It may even be more. And the, the debt the debt component associated with these investments has also become increasingly public. Um, and I, and I have to assume that that trend will continue. Um, so this is a question for all of you. Uh, how does that affect your job? How, do, how does that change um, your, your strategy, your returns, um, your relationship to the, to the investors, the limited partners, or does it? Is it, is it really just the same thing with, with different uh, tools? I don't really see an impact uh, to what we're trying to do from the public company side of it. Uh, frankly, I, as I look to the massive you know, inflows, the renaming of mutual funds to put impact in their name uh, with no real change in strategy, what have you, uh, it just seems like a bit of completely separate. What is interesting, though, is to the extent we as private owners who can actually make the hard decisions, who can actually have that intentionality around impact, transform business models, 
drive towards positive environmental or social outcomes. What's kind of exciting is if they're big enough, it's clear that there's a great deal of appetite in the public markets for those businesses. But on a day-to-day -day basis, it certainly doesn't influence the kind of companies that, that we're looking for, um, just given the same way, you know, private markets, public markets, like there's some overlap, but it's not every day. I would say it's an increasingly big part of how we think about managing companies under our ownership period because of the exit implications. And so we actually have a massive body of work that is literally called ESG for IPO readiness because our companies that are exiting through IPOs, we need to be locked up tight across how they think about the material issues for their business, what the story is they're telling to investors around sustainability themes, how they're measuring that. Um, we sold a company recently called Liberty Tire, and Liberty Tire is fundamentally a recycling company. They're part of the circular economy, had never identified as being a sustainability company before because they're dealing in the tire sector. And they recycle about a third of the tires in the U.S. every year and turn them into really interesting usable materials, like the pavement that goes underneath the playgrounds that actually has a lot of safety characteristics or reduces injuries, and pavement for roads, which actually has higher friction, so it reduces car accidents. And so they're... There are all these things that were actually core to how they made profit. And so my team at Carlisle spent a ton of time with them, understanding those impact pathways, understanding the science behind them, helping them measure that. That was a big part of our data room. I was a big part of the kind of sale process and the, the meetings with equity sponsors because that's an important part of how companies are sourcing deals for their portfolios now. So I think we've seen it in terms of exit demand, exit multiples, and then increasingly cost of capital as we raise financing alongside of those deals. Erica, do you see any difference with the, the move toward public equity, public debt, not in, in, in transparency and the tools for evaluating these investments? Yeah, for us, it's, it's, it's wonderful because we start with our clients creating an investment policy, and then we go and do our asset allocation work, right, based on the markets. And then we go and across asset classes, um, we think about ESG integration. So for us, it's... it's um, it's as it should be. And then given that we think that ESG analysis is such a critical tool to every asset class, um, this makes all kinds of sense. So. A couple of you have mentioned um, employment and, and the, the movement toward greater diversity, inclusion, and equity as uh, somehow related to the, the growth in, in impact investing. I'd, I'd like to flesh it out a little more and again, not to put in anybody on the spot, but the finance industry is not usually the highest rated industry in, 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 in the DIE world. And, and frankly, neither is media, my own, um, my own uh, business. Uh, neither, neither comes out particularly good. But um, how, how are your companies tackling this issue both internally and how, and how you evaluate companies um, that's different than it was just a few years ago? Well, I think there's clearly an increased mindfulness that is important. Frankly, how ESG integration started was LPs started asking questions. And the best way to get a GP to do something is to have an LP ask about it. <laughs> and so there, there's some similarities there. And frankly, that's a great driver to action and to an appreciation that having a diverse set of viewpoints in the room leads to better outcomes and that there is talent that doesn't look and sound exactly like everyone else. So at Apollo, you know, we're very focused on just creating opportunity is how we think about it. And that opportunity comes in a lot of different ways. But I, you know, as our CEO said, each of us 
had some lucky break in our career. So let's find ways both at our company and through our portfolio companies to create those lucky breaks for other people. And recognizing that some people have more lucky breaks in a given life because of where they start than others. And to be mindful of that and to create opportunity. I, I, I didn't have any lucky breaks. I've been working my ass off <laughs> for 30 years. <laughs> well, you, you got the interview. The guy, loved, the guy thought You're you were funny. <laughs> I would say, I think the, the S of ESG, I think that's the next frontier of our work. And I think, you know, in the early days, we were focused on environmental issues and just realized that companies that can produce a widget using less water, waste, electricity, it's a more efficient business. Like that's just where we want to be orienting towards. And I think we were in the early innings of realizing that human beings are not just salaries that are reflected in an income statement. They're people. And when you think about productivity and efficiency and engagement and loyalty, those things are massive drivers of business value. Um, we have a tech company based in Amsterdam called Dept. It's a digital agency. Um, and they're becoming a B corporation, which means they're kind of embedding purpose in their corporate charter. And when you ask them why, you know, they're, they're a tech company. They don't have a big footprint. They're not manufacturing. They're not worried about health and safety. The answer is their people and talent. And so it's important for them to demonstrate to the market, measure and quantify that they are at the bleeding edge of environmental and social practices because they can attract and retain the highest talent, which is their competitive moat. And so I think there's a bunch of different ways that the S is playing out across different industries from health and safety and more traditional industrial manufacturing. But I think people are starting to realize that the human element has been undervalued, which means it's a source of great potential alpha. Yeah, I mean, certainly one one hears it said that you know, Gen Z, Gen Y plus Gen Z, much more likely to work or much more likely to want to work for some company with a, a stronger sense of, of, of mission and purpose. Um, I don't know that that's ever really been put to the test, um, but maybe if if what you're describing is is true, it won't, it won't have to be. Um, I, I, I'm curious at the mention of B corporations, just because it's something that I've paid a little bit of attention to lately. Um, how how do you think about B corporations? Do you do you have a, a, a bias toward investing in them? Do you um, do you follow who is a B corp and who isn't a B corp? Are there are there enough companies out there that are kind of close enough? The way that some companies like don't label themselves organic, but kind of play up all the sustainable things that they do is how significant a force are, are B Corps in your, in your world? I would say B Corps are one of many different frameworks that are driving towards what Erica was talking about. How do we get better quantitative performance data about ESG topics? And so some frameworks are better for other companies. B Corp is a really kind of crisp way to demonstrate to the market that you care about these things, that you're performing well along these dimensions. We have a lot of companies that the most material thing for them is just climate change full stop. Right. And so the TCFD framework might be the right framework for them. Um, but I think what, what we've focused on at Carlisle is that it's not this binary of you're a B Corp or you're not, you're, you know, you're renewable or not. It's that change over time. And so you need data to demonstrate that progress. And I say climate change is one of the most fascinating places because the story is not just the renewables. The energy transition is a transition across every sector of our economy. 
Um, and so we've been really focused about traditional energy businesses. They need capital, they need expertise, and they need a long-term time horizon so that they can transition into new age energy companies because that's the exit trajectory. And so I think this idea of it's less about are you this or are you that, and it's more about what are you demonstrating over time that the market is really responding to. I, I yeah. should add that, remember, B Corporation is a, um, it's a framework. It is not a corporate form, right? So it's not the same thing as being a benefit corporation, right? right? So that fundamentally is, is different. And a lot of corporate law has not been established. It's not been written yet. Right? I would argue that some of the most sustainable companies, and by the way, some of the most arguably um, sustainable asset managers that we know don't use ostensibly the frameworks, the labels, nothing. They just do their work and they do it really well in a really conscious way. You know, I've known, you know, wonderful hedge fund managers that systematically integrate ESG factors, they don't even know they're sustainable investors, but they are, right? So I think B Corp, again, it's a, it's a great framework, um, and it's needed as we make progress. But it's not, it's not the end-all, be-all. Yeah. You know, there's no silver bullet. I think you're touching on is kind of one of the fundamental challenges ahead of us, which is that there's no gap or IFRS for ESG for impact. And so if you are, I, you know, I sympathize with like an LP, they invest in this fund, this fund, and this fund. They've got three apples, four oranges, and a banana, and they don't know what Which to make. Yeah. And they don't know what to make of any of this. So that is kind of one of the fun, one of the ways to try to tackle it. What's the, what's the BIA score, whether, um, what's, uh, you know, TCFD, what have you, but we haven't had the emergence of a single, you know, gap-like measure. Should and there be? Would it be, would, would, would it be? A, a more efficient system if, if such industry standards existed? Well, I don't think there. so. We're getting there, right? I mean, the SEC is, is actively thinking about what do we do with regard to disclosure of material factors. And, and by the way, th this isn't semantics. When we think about you know, climate change and the, the systemic financial risk of climate change, that's real. That is something that we need disclosure of. It's going to affect outcomes, you know. And so, again, this is not this is not um, ideological. Yeah. But at the same token, you know, if you imagine two public companies, one a services business, one a manufacturing business, their P and Ls look very different, but they have basically the same items on them. How would their, you know, their ESG statement what what is relevant how do you compare and how do you know what to make of the fact that the carbon intensity of the accounting consultancy is so much lower does that mean they're doing does that mean the industrial business is doing bad well worse than it could or that the consultancy is doing better than it should we don't really know which goes back to the the challenge of comparability and also figuring out for any given business what actually matters i actually disagree I, I think we're going to see it pretty soon um, I, I, and, I, and your point is well taken of there's a barbell to data. There are some data points that matter across all industries, all sectors, board diversity, board level oversight of ESG issues, carbon emissions, you have to compare it by industry, but we need to know kind of climate positioning. And there's some metrics that matter to specific industries. And SASB, one of the frameworks, has done a great job of drilling down total recordable injury rate for heavy manufacturing. And, and I really think the the market, the investing world has to solve that from within of converging on some data points that we will track in the same way, using the same normalization metrics, because we need that. 
you need headcount, you need enterprise value, you need revenue, you need industry, and some metrics by industry, because we need that data. Otherwise, we're going to keep splintering in different directions. And I've used this data point before, but my team in one week this summer got 37 ESG DDQs from investors. They were all different. And so the amount of data we're actually able to provide back to those in a meaningful way, that's just a silly use of energy and resourcing. And so I think solving the problem collectively within the investment industry will lead to performance-based, quantitative, comparable, and frankly, useful data. But it's going to take us actually bringing down the kind of competitive walls and, and doing that together. That's, that's dead on. And I should say, we haven't gotten an RFP for advisory service that doesn't have something about ESG in it for, for ages. And we're getting um, questions about our own firm. And yep. when we vet asset managers, we consistently ask about um, ESG and, and diversity data. We have to understand what their thought process is. How do they kind of systematically integrate? And, um, and this is a big change. You know, and it's it's good change. So not to make it too complicated, but because we're talking about climate change, shouldn't there be international standards for company reporting? Yeah, there will be. But we're you know, we've still got a lot of work to do. Well, even on the employment side, there is a very US centric context under which we're talking about this. Mm -hmm. If you ask the same question in in even in countries in Europe, what constitutes like diverse yeah. is very different. Yeah. And so are we going to address that? Like how how do we have enough specificity that we get information that leads to better outcomes? Like, what is our actual goal here? I think our actual goal needs to be driving towards better outcomes, not be, you know, another 300-page SEC rule uh, that leads us with information that's not terribly useful. This is about transparency, ultimately. Absolutely. You know. um, with only about three minutes left, uh, I'd like to look a little bit toward the future. Tell me what trends you see now that you think are going to accelerate over the next two to three years in this space. Meg, why don't you go first? Um, I think one of my favorite trends in the ESG and impact world is dynamic materiality. What is relevant today is not going to be necessarily what's relevant two years from now. Um, I think Me Too was a really interesting moment of prior to that, I'm not sure people were going through legal documents with a spine to the comb about what happens if there's an issue and how do you do background check. That these issues emerge and have moments and then they become priced in and become part of how we do business. Um, and so I think there is always something that is emerging. And so this idea of how do you look around corners, see what's coming next. Um, I think we've been really focused on mental health across our portfolio. We have almost a million portfolio company employees. And how do you start thinking about some of these other drivers of wellness and productivity? We really focus on human rights and supply chains, which have been really coming to the surface recently. Um, and then really focus on climate change and not just in the energy sector, but that is kind of spilling across all layers of the economy. And we call it the, the net zero virus, where more than half of global AUM has promised to have net zero carbon emissions by 2050 or sooner. Half of global emissions are covered by regulatory regimes that are mandating net zero. It's not just about the individual companies. They're pushing that up their supply chain, down their supply chain. And so it, it doesn't really matter what industry you're in. You're going to start feeling the pricing pressure and getting in front of that will be a major driver of financial return. Joanna? I think we are, as we see, you know, specifically the the interaction between the institutional investor and um, asset managers, 
we definitely see a lot of people who are relatively new to the party, who are building out their practice, who are defining for themselves what it is that they're looking to accomplish and starting to dip their toe in it with, you know, a subset of our PE allocation, we're focused on impact, what have you. So I think as, as we hopefully prove out the viability that it's non-concessionary uh, and prove this out in a way to many investors who have an, a, a bit of skepticism, that we'll see a continued inflow of focus onto this, especially because of all the dynamics that you know, Meg just so ably described, all those are secular tailwinds to a company that's going to be owned an impact fund. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to see strong performance from, from this entire vintage, knock on wood, uh, and, a, and a continued focus on the part of allocators. Erica, you get the last word in the last 30 seconds. <laughs> so I actually think the trends in sustainable and impact investing are the same as the broad trends in the capital markets, right? Um, impact measurement is one I can see, but the themes on, on climate, on diversity, on food systems, on healthy oceans, those are the same. Um, what I would also add is that not many people these days yet are talking about quantum computing. And so even if we're talking five or 10 years from now, the implications of quantum computing and ultimately achieving the sustainable development goals are huge. And so I think we need to be talking about that um, as it relates to, you know, access to all those sustainable development goals. That'll be our panel for next year. Uh, I would like the audience to join me in thanking this fabulous panel. Thank you. Thank you.